When I talk to CFOs, you know, I ask them what keeps them up at night, what really bothers them. It's not actually the concern over the financial statements, but the concern over the unknown. Vasilis is going to talk a bit about the trends in cybersecurity and the recent hacks. He's going to show you a wall, a wall that you never want to be on. We're also going to give you a very unique opportunity, an opportunity to listen to an ethical hacker, a real live ethical hacker. Now, he works for AFCPAs. And then I'm going to talk about how do you beat that hacker and how can we help you beat that hacker. So to start it off, Vasilis Kontaglis, he's a manager in our business process and IT advisory services practice. Vasilis worked for Cooper's Librarian and PwC and IBM. He was responsible for change management over IBM's manufacturing execution system globally, as well as cloud service provisioning for IBM clients globally. So Vasilis comes to us with great experience and knowledge and his background in cybersecurity uh, and controls is excellent. So, Vasilis? All right, thank you, James. Uh, if we go historically back, we'll see what happened last year. We'll see that there was a 24% decrease in the number of known attacks. And I want to point out that these are the known attacks, right? Uh, or data breaches. Because obviously, there have been other attacks or data breaches that we don't know and we'll never hear about them. Now, on the contrary, though, the number of records that contain private information went up quite substantially compared to 2017. And the value is $450 million, right? That's a lot of money. Let's look at a couple of examples here. The first example is the Alive Hospice uh, House in uh, Nashville. And what happened in this case, it was that for two employees, their email was compromised. The result was that the private information for some of their patients were stolen. About 1,800 records got stolen. Well, that's a HIPAA violation right off the bat, right? HIPAA, it's a big violation. Things will happen. So we can see on the next example, the Arcoviri up in Buffalo, New York. Again, we have a HIPAA violation. Uh, they had a year-long breach. Eventually, they, they found it, but it was too late. They got fined $200,000, and then on top of that, they were required to have a very detailed risk assessment, not only on their IT, but their internal processes as well. The last one I want to point from these, interestingly enough, for that unnamed casino, unnamed casino, right, the perpetrators were able to access the high roller database from the thermostat in the fish tank of the front lobby of the casino. Who would think of that? Well, guess what? It happened. So let's move a little bit locally here. For the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, you are obligated to report a breach, a data breach, that has 500 or more records stolen. When that happens and you report it, you go on that wall. This is a publicly accessible information. I, I just, you know, you can search on the Google and you can find it. There's no, no magic to it. Just want to point out that, you know, you will see down on the bottom there are already three incidents here in Massachusetts for 2019. What have we seen as a data breaches type, right? One is people, personnel, disgruntled employees, or any kind of 
people that might be able to do damage on your organization. Third party, that's the people that you depend on, third party service providers and everything else in between. Your IT controls, this is something that you internally do and have a procedure for in order to be able to do something correctly. And includes anything from change management, uh, security, access to different systems, and everything in between. And finally, technology. Well, indeed, technology is part of it. It might actually be a problem. An assessment can figure out if you guys have an issue there or not. And with that, I think I'm just going to turn it over to James. Up until about a year ago, I think I was the only person in the firm that actually had ever seen Mr. Anderson. He could be among us right now. He's kind of everywhere but nowhere. He's very sneaky. He has infiltrated many of our clients at the request, of course. And from that, people have learned a lot of how they can fix their controls or fix their cybersecurity environment so that they can prevent people who are unethical hackers from getting in. So the difference is Mr. Anderson is an ethical hacker. We gathered a set of questions that our clients wanted to know about ethical hacking and how to protect themselves or how an ethical hacker actually works. So it's kind of like a day in the life of an ethical hacker. And we videotaped Mr. Anderson. The first question I had was about his hacker lab. What does his hacker lab look like? Uh, and does he have a, an actual remote hacker lab or is it all just in one location? It's a desk with a lot of monitors so I can watch different systems, different applications. The desk is not as neat because I have a lot of tools. You have to get parts for different things and different purposes. So it's kind of like a hoarder situation. So when I go to remote locations, I will usually take along a tote full of different wireless receivers, antennas, cameras, power supplies, batteries. So I have multiple totes that I carry different supplies and depending on what it is I am doing. So next, uh, I asked Mr. Anderson about physical hacking. What is physical hacking? How does he get in? What are his methods? We'll hear a little more about how he clones badges and how he gets into physical locations uh, right now. When I go to access a building, I will look online for hours, the type of business, as much information as I can get. So that way when you actually go there, you're not dressed inappropriately, you don't seem lost, you fit in, but at the same time, you are not noticed or stand out. And then you try to exploit any weaknesses you find. I watched a entrance to a building and noticed employees entering the building following another employee and the first employee will typically leave the door open 
I would coattail them or basically follow them in after they had swiped their badge and enter the building that way. With portable device you can keep in your pocket, you get near the person, read their RFID badge, you can scan for fobs or portable RFID devices, and then you have the number, you can reproduce it whenever you want. The key fob or the badge is obviously for the office. But the same principle applies to remotes for your car. If you have a car that you just walk up to your car and it unlocks the door and you push a start button, you don't have to put a key into, that's the same basic technology. And you could theoretically clone the key to your car or the ID badge itself. The next piece is on logical hacking. So you, we talked about physical, being in there, walking right in. But how does he get in there remotely from his hacker lab? So let's see what he has to say about logical hacking. First thing you need to find out is what wireless network you need to get into. And the best way that I have found to do that is to walk around with my phone and scan the wireless networks. Many organizations and individuals will name wireless networks either based off of the name of the business, their home location, name of children. So if you have a wireless network called My Business Private, that would be more important to me to access than any other wireless network. I would then start to de-authenticate all the clients connected and try to capture the certificate that establishes authenticated connection between the device and the wireless system. It depends on the type of information that I'm trying to get. I would start by doing a little bit of research on the organization find out if they've got any type of social media that would tell you the type of employees, the type of systems possibly that they have. I then do a port scan where I check to see what they have open to the internet and I look to see if there's any known vulnerabilities to the applications and services that are running and then access the systems. So when he was talking about de-authenticating users using wireless, basically what he's doing is he's kicking everybody off of the network. And then what happens is your computers automatically rejoin the network. And if he does this often enough and it's kicking off and rejoining, kicking off, eventually he captures enough bits of information to piece together the key to get onto the network. And then he talked a little about the scanning piece, the port scanning. So basically what he's trying to do there is he's trying to find out what he could see. So he uses his hacker tools, he uses specific software, again, inside the client's network to see what can he see. Once he finds out what he, see, what he can see, he looks and says, okay, this software is running on it, these, uh, this software has these types of uh, vulnerabilities, known vulnerabilities. They download a piece of software right from the internet and they're <coughs> able to exploit the weakness, the vulnerability that he then found for that piece of software.
This type of effort is really, really sneaky, and people don't know what happens, and the hacker then takes over the entire system and initiates transactions when you're not even there. Many people think about uh, their cell phones and they say, aha, uh -huh, I have a device, my cell phone I could trust, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. We talked to Mr. Henderson about how secure is their mobile device, and then we asked him also all of these types of Internet of Things devices. We talked to Mr. Anderson about that as well. Not secure at all. There's two ways to access somebody's phone. One way is to access the wireless network that they're connected to, and then you can install software on their phone. That, in turn, will give you access to anything on that device as if the device was in your hand. Another method that's frequently used is to mimic a cell phone tower, at which point not only do you have access to the data, but you also have access to the calls and messages. An IoT device will give you access to other systems on the home network or a business network. An example of some IoT devices are home routers, voice assistants such as Alexa, Google Home, Siri even for Apple devices, even smart refrigerators, Samsung has some of those devices. The IoT device in themselves doesn't provide any important information. Typically, you use that as a proxy to get access to other systems on the network. We generally think we could trust our cell phones, and the only people that could break into them are, are really powerful governments like uh, or the CIA. That device that uh, mimics a cell phone tower is actually available for sale. Now it is illegal to use, but tell that to an unethical hacker that's trying to get your information. And then on the Internet of Things, I think that what was interesting to note there was when you think about this, your every device that you put onto your home network or uh, office network, whether it be a printer or, or the like, they're all creating points of vulnerability. The challenge with that is they're designed to make things easy for us, not designed for a robust, secure environment. Updates that you get on your phone that are security updates or on your PCs, those are, are being you know, pushed on a regular basis, but the Internet of Things devices are not updated. I had one, one last question for Mr. Anderson, and just you might want to think about this, okay? How do we know you're not hacking people in this room right now. You don't. Yeah, that's the sad part of it. You don't know when you're being hacked. That's the issue. You, we trust the cell phone. We trust that when we're on, we bought uh, the internet, that we're okay. We bought antivirus. We bought all these things that we think are going to help us. You are vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. So then the next question is like, what can we possibly do about it? So we start with the blocking and tackling of security. So where is your data? In what systems does your data reside? So when we're fundraising, right, we have people's data. So that sits probably in one system. We have financial data sitting in another system. We may have volunteer system data in another system. Are those on-premise? 
of those off-site, knowing where your data is and what data you have is very important. And that's called an information asset inventory. This is the very first step. What do I have? So then once you know what you have, you have to think about how is that data vulnerable? So data in the cloud may be, may be subject to different vulnerabilities than data on-premise. You have the cloud service provider, you have the software as a service provider, you have transmission of data when it's in the cloud. On-premise, it may be focused primarily on your network and your security around your network and access. But knowing what risks your data are facing will help you understand what to actually do about it. The next is to develop an actual policy on accessing data. People's policies aren't specific. Who should access those data? Who should not access those data? What are the policies around accessing those data? Those are very important things. If you don't tell people explicitly what they can and can't do, should and shouldn't do, people don't have a target to know what to do sometimes. People make assumptions. And out of the good-natured selves, we want to serve, right? We may overserve and overprovide you know, to our own people and then put ourselves at risk. And we wouldn't even know it. So once you've developed this policy, we need to put a classifications on those data. So there's some public data on our website. That's OK. That's, that's not a big deal. Everybody can see that. But then we have donor data. And then we may have credit card numbers or bank account numbers. Those data are really private. And we could be subject to lawsuits and fines for not adequately protecting those data. You need to classify different types of data so people know then what types of security to put on those data. You wouldn't put the same stuff, a set of security on the website data because it's open to everybody as you would donor data. And then I think this is a really critical and important piece of it is ownership of data. Whose data is it? And I'm not talking about you know, donors' data is their data. I'm talking about financial data, who owns those data? Who's responsible for those files? If people take personal responsibility, that's the first step to not treating data in a, in a lax manner. And what I mean by that is you know, we want to help everybody. We give access. Everybody has access. We trust everybody. But nobody yet owns those data. Nobody has personal responsibility over it. If we assign you are the data owner, and you need to take this you know, as your own personal responsibility, they may not grant access. They may be more careful about who accesses those data and how those data are secured, because now it's their own. It's not the company's. You have to turn it personal. So what countermeasures can you do? So I'm going to talk about what the hacker does, what you could do, and what we do to also help you out. So for this, you really need good IT general controls. For those controls uh, also to be operating effectively. And, it, and it's anything from. You know, giving access, taking away access in a reasonable amount of time. It's having password parameters, good change management, and then monitoring access and getting information on the, those access. Some people default to the cybersecurity insurance, uh, but I can tell you the policies are written in such a way that if you don't have good IT general controls, they'll actually deny claims. And this has happened time after time. So we actually assess the IT general controls. Many of you may have had kind of a very high-level IT risk assessment. Vasilis or somebody else may have actually done it in support of financial statement audit. But we can also drive down a lot deeper uh, and look at these controls individually to see if they're really working. 
The other thing is we can look at the configuration of your monitoring system. And also, it's, it's very interesting, because you know, before we started doing this, I'd say, geez, you know, you, you, people have policies. Why do they need somebody to assess the policies? Until one client had us assess their policy. And there were 17 pages of comments related to how their policy was not written to protect them as the absolute backstop of backstops. So if you think you have a good policy, uh, you might, but uh, the ones that we've looked at, there have been so many comments that we are just convinced that insurance companies really know how to write these things in a manner that protects them and not our clients. So usually the challenge is if it's an external facing website, the firewall may not be patched to the most current uh, level. There's also the, what we call ports, What's, what traffic is allowed in and out that may not be configured appropriately. So what we do to help you, we do these vulnerability assessments and we also look at the configuration of the firewall. Well, how about on the internal side? So somebody gets into your company either through the outside and is onto your network or the biggest risk I'm concerned about is actually not people in the finance department, it's volunteers. Because we trust our volunteers, but the question is we don't really know how much we should trust them, or can we trust them, but we innately trust them. So they are internal, and they could plug in at any time and potentially do a lot of damage if they know what they're doing. So, we, uh, so you need to make sure all the applications are up to date. You need to make sure that also everything's patched and that things are very segmented so people can't go across the network to do lots of different things to uh, our financial systems. We do what we call internal vulnerability assessments or penetration tests, and we also look at IoT devices. On the wireless side, uh, we talked about deauthentication and kicking you on and off to get uh, access. So one of the things we, we like to do is to really make sure our clients segregate the guest network from the network that we rely on for business purposes. And you can either segment again those volunteers so that they don't have access to certain things. And that we find to be very helpful. And also using strong encryption. A lot of our clients don't use the enterprise version of their wireless software. And we find that that's where Mr. Anderson can come in, half hour, and he's onto your network. What we do is we have Mr. Anderson go out. We find out, does it take him five minutes, 10 minutes, a half hour, or a couple of hours to get on your network? And that's enough for you then to understand that where your vulnerability is. And then we talk to you about how to remediate that, whether it's upgrading to an enterprise version of the wireless capability, new wireless devices, segmenting the wireless networks, whatever the strategy may be. I don't think Mr. Anderson is going to be wearing a hoodie when he goes into your company. He will blend in so well that you will have no clue because he's monitored you for, for potentially a couple of days before, before he actually gets in. But we do physical security breach tests and then talk to you about how we get in. So web applications, is it to a high standard of encryption and was it coded properly? We do penetration tests and vulnerability assessments on that. 